Well, that is our prayer, Father, that you would speak to us and that we would have a sense of your purposes and your plans for our lives couched in obedience to your promises and purity of life. Father, thank you for the encouragement that it always brings us to gather as a church, how it renews us in our spirit, and then how your word works on our hearts and minds. And thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit, taking the word to renew us in our thinking. Father, we commit our time to you, uh, focused on your word now, with humble hearts. We receive it. Take it and use it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my office, I have hanging, and I don't know if you can see it very well, uh, an old black and white picture. I've probably showed this to you in the past somewhere along the line. This is a very old picture, I think taken back in the 30s, maybe in the 40s, um, as an aerial photo. It's the actual photo of a little lake in Michigan. It's called Christie Lake. Some of you have heard me talk about it. And uh, Christie Lake was a very significant place in my life growing up. I was raised in the suburbs of South Chicago, and so it was always with great delight and agony for the day-long two-hour drive that it took to go around the bottom of Lake Michigan from the South Chicago area to the South Kalamazoo area of Michigan. And there in southern Michigan, littered with all these lakes in that low, sandy fruit country, was Christie Lake. Back before I was born, my dad, who was pastoring a church just outside of Gary, Indiana, uh, in a place called Portage, Indiana, would escape the fumes of the steel mills in the late 50s, and he would drive up to southern Michigan, and he found Christie Lake, and across the lake over here was a guy who would rent out rowboats, and my dad would skip out of town with his tackle box and his fishing pole, go over on the far side of the lake, get a boat and slip into the water and fish for part of the day or all day and then drive home back to the Gary, Indiana and re-engage with his ministry responsibilities. One day when he showed up to rent his boat, the guy told him, uh, Pastor, um, you need to know that I'm selling my boats. I'm not going to rent boats anymore. And so um, I'm not going to be here for you, which was a great disappointment to my dad. And my dad said, well, do you know anybody else on the lake that might have boats? And so he said, well, directly across the lake, um, you, there is an, an old man and an old woman. They're a brother and a sister, and they own all that property over there. And I think they have some boats in the weeds over there. Maybe they'll let you rent one from them. And that began, that began a whole chain of sequential events. I can talk a long time about Christie Lake, but here's the point. One day, my dad, wanting to go fishing, rents a boat from a guy who says, no more boats, who says, go across the lake and try to borrow a boat. He goes across the lake to rent or borrow a boat. He engages in a conversation with Howard and Evelyn Blodgett, two, a, bro a brother and sister who are old uh, bachelor and spinster, and they have been packing out the sheds on their little fruit farm there with junk, literally with junk, with the great grand vision of starting a Bible camp for boys and girls. 
My dad rounds up some of the pastors from the South Chicago area. They come up and view the property, kneel down. I can take you right to the spot where they kneeled down. And they prayed for God to give them a Bible camp there. And they interfaced with Howard and Evelyn Blodgett. Howard passed away shortly thereafter. And uh, when I was a wee little boy and in the early 60s, I can remember slipping back through uh, Miss Blodgett's home where she lived by herself. I don't know how she did it. She had Parkinson's disease. And her home literally was so stacked with stuff, they would make a TV show out of it nowadays, that we would turn sideways to go down through parts of the room. And uh, who knows how many cats lived in there with her. But sure enough, that began a sequence of events where that property became Christie Lake Bible Camp. A few years after that, in the 70s, a little boy from Indiana goes to Bible Camp at Christie Lake Bible Camp. He's 11 years old and he's at camp for the first time and God does a great work in his life and I can talk about that too. This morning, in just a few hours, that little boy from Indiana will be standing in his pulpit of a great church in California with 3,000 people minimum this morning, a radio ministry, a television ministry. Because a guy went to get a boat And a guy who had the boat said, go get a boat over there. There's a guy in his pulpit this morning in California. Who knows how else God has woven together his plan for individual lives. Do you live with a sense of the reality of the sovereign oversight of God in your life? We've been talking about this reality as we've responded to the incidences in the life of Joseph. And it's chapter 45. In chapter 45 of this great book of Genesis, we need to pause yet again this week to finish what I started last week. And I trust that we will encourage your hearts by uh, even allowing this extra time to just focus on the first part of chapter 45. We are in the story of the life of Joseph the one who was sold into slavery in Egypt. And now, a couple of decades and a few years later, some 22 plus years later, his brothers, as we reminded ourselves last week, have come down from Canaan because they are now in the famine years. Remember the great dream that Pharaoh had, there would be seven years of famine, seven years of, of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, and Joseph was put in charge over all the land. Let's remind ourselves of this by reading the first eight verses or so of chapter 45. And remember, his brothers are down for their second time. He has been working on them with a sequence of challenges. They are going to reconcile now, and I want you to notice, as we emphasized last week, how Joseph responds to these brothers who have been so wicked in his life. These brothers who have been so interruptive to him, trying to, you might say, destroy his life. They tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. Chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him 
and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence, as you can only imagine. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Their minds had to be going a million miles an hour as they, as they emotionally processed this new information. Totally unaware that this political official that they had been dealing with for some months was their little brother that they tried to kill. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, okay, now this is the part we want to see. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh." Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. For all practical purposes, there was no one more powerful than Joseph, really. Because Pharaoh had submitted authority to Joseph and everything that was processed and the decisions that needed to be made were running through Joseph. There's a newer Pharaoh probably now, a younger man. That's why he uses the phrase, made me father of Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. We'll just stop there. We read the entire chapter last week and commented on parts of it. You know, when you get a grasp of living at a level where you want God's will to unfold in your life. So I remind you, I'm not talking about a rebellious hearted person. I'm not talking about an obstinate, disobedient person. In many ways, you're on your own if that's you. God will use the bruises and the bumps that will come from sin in your life to try to work through you. And you will be able to turn around someday and see God's hand upon your life. But I'm telling you, that's a difficult road. I'm talking about the person who's been living life wondering, what is God doing in my life? Maybe you've just been living like a vanilla Christian life, but you're basically obedient and you want to be used of God. You're just not sure how. Maybe there's been all kinds of circumstances in your life that are confusing to you. Maybe there's even been difficulty. But if you can get to a place where you recognize that Philippians 1.6 is true in your life, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform that work and bring it about to completion. All right? 
and that God is sovereignly involved over the affairs of your life like Joseph did, it will change your attitude about everything. That's why Joseph could look at these scoundrel brothers of his and say, guys, don't be upset. Don't be worked up. It's all okay. You didn't send me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. That's an attitude changer. That's a life changer. And so we got into three of seven principles about the plan of God or realities about the plan of God. And we're going to call this, uh, we're calling this insights from the life of Joseph. Go ahead and flip the screen there, Jimmy. We're calling this insights from from the life of Joseph about the plan of God for my life. We looked at three. Number one was this. Number one, the plan of God for my life might very well be about other people. Didn't we see that in Joseph? He said, God sent me here to preserve the remnant of Israel, really. God sent me here to unfold the great promises of the Abrahamic covenant. God is about a greater work. Second thing we learned was that the plan of God for my life, not only might it not have less to do with me than other people, but number two, it might include seasons of suffering and difficulty. Sometimes I worry about young Christians because I think that you think when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you began to read your Bible that you thought everything would really turn good in your life. And you're like saying, Okay, God, I've done my part. Now, how come you're not doing your part? And it could very well be that the suffering and the difficulty of your life is God at work in your life. And that's exactly what he's orchestrated for any number of reasons because God often uses adversity to grow his children and to bring us to a point where our pride is flushed and our heart is broken. And we have an attitude of humility before a holy, righteous God. And we can say with our Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. You unfold your plan in me. I will trust you enough that your love towards your child is a faithful love and that you're not making mistakes. And so this season of difficulty, and didn't Joseph have seasons of difficulty in his life? The third thing we saw last week was that the plan of God for my life might take me places I never really wanted to go. That included prison for Joseph. We have many stories like that, don't we? I think of of Charles Coulson, Chuck Coulson. He wrote a little book called Born Again. The title for many people is not very compelling. It is a tremendous read. It even reads well today. He was a hatchet man, if you recall, in the Nixon administration at the time of Watergate. And he was part of the whole thing that went, that went uh, down and imploded on Nixon. Nixon resigns and Colson ends up being put in prison. And what happens in prison is he accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior. He, roll, he, con, he commits his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And today, all around the world, there are men and women who have been reached with the gospel through prison fellowship ministries because of Chuck Colson starting this, this vast ministry. And when we get to heaven, there will be literally, I am sure, tens 
of thousands of faithful there singing praise alongside us to our Lord and Savior who were reached because Chuck Colson went to prison. He never dreamed he'd go there. He had no idea what God was doing in his life. Joseph had no idea why he sat in prison and, and no idea why the butler and the baker wouldn't tell the Pharaoh his dreams and his interpretive ability until the right day at the right time when God said, I've been holding you here right now for this moment. Here it is. And that in a less than a 24-hour period, probably in less than about a 60-minute period, vaulted him from the deepest part of the cellar to second in command over the whole country because it was God's time at God's place, taking him places he never dreamed he would go. You see, you'll ruin that with a bad attitude. Do you know that? You start breaking the drywall and you start kicking your kids in their bicycles and you start just pulling out your hair and you put a lid on God's ability to have you strategically placed in a difficult season and a difficult time saying, I have you here. You need to wait on me, Psalm 37, and delight in me and you see what I'm going to bring about. Those are the three that we worked at. Number four, let's continue to learn. We've got to move here. Number four, the plan of God for my life let's go positive for a minute, might include some amazing surprises. And this is a great thing. And I want to remind you and take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 84. I'm on the board at Appalachian Bible College. And Dr. Anderson, who's been the president there for many number of years, always writes at the bottom of his correspondence and his letters, he will always below his name write Psalm 84, 11, and 12. And he tells the story of being a young teenager, 12 or 13 years old, in his little Bible church youth group in Iowa. And in a youth group having to do a devotional, he had to lead one. He found this verse in, his, in the book of Psalms and God used it to transform his thinking. God used it to challenge him to be this kind of a man who would walk uprightly. He has a great testimony of God's amazing blessings on his life. Let's start with verse 10 in Psalm 84. Look what it says. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's the right attitude, isn't it? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. That's what I've been talking about. The kind of attitude, the kind of person, not waking up in the morning to do sin and to, to, to be careless, to spit in the eye of God and then wonder where's the blessing of God. But the person who has a surrendered heart, the person who has an attitude of submission to the sovereign oversight of God's will for their lives, Walking blameless in this world, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And that man, word man there is a term for humanity. It's not just male and gender. All people, blessed are they who trust in you. No good thing. Look at the last part of verse 11. And no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Don't you think that Joseph had to have had some amazing times in his life. 
Think about the seven good years when he's traveling all over the country. Don't you think at the weekend that he went to some resort on the Nile? He had this new beautiful wife. He's traveling all over. He's got unlimited resources. And don't you think that he must have taken walks in the, in the cool of the evening and pondered himself and thought, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but today I really, really like it. Thank you, Lord, for this just amazing steak dinner we just had and this unbelievable resort where we are. I don't know how I got here, but Lord, I believe you're at work in my life and I want to thank you for the bad times, but Lord, thank you for this good day. What an amazing thing, Lord, today. Or maybe when he was standing in front of those granaries, and remember when he was storing up the grain for seven years, that those granaries spilled over, and they were doing a very careful job cataloging all of their uh, grain and the volume and where they stored it in the store cities all around the country. And finally it said they had so much, they didn't even keep track of it anymore. It's like... Okay, forget, forget taking records. Just keep pushing it up with the bulldozers. Keep, get those rubber tire front end loaders and just keep piling that grain on. Just, we, we don't have room in our silos. We have to build bunkers. We'll cover them with tarps. It's not going to rain anyway pretty soon. It's going to be dry. And, and don't you think Joseph must have walked around when he saw the fruit of the blessing of God in the seven years and just said, Lord... I've never seen so much food, Lord. Lord, thank you for this amazing season of productivity in our lives. And we could probably right now take the microphone and go around the room and we could get testimonies of those seasons in your life where you would say, right here, right now, I would never trade being in the will of God. God is just pouring out his blessing. You will have those times in your life as well. Joseph did, you be faithful and you watch amazing things that God will do. That friend of mine who was an 11-year-old camper at Christie Lake Bible Camp, who's standing in a big pulpit in California this morning, I know he thinks that. I've talked to him. He's kind of a geek. I know him pretty well. He won't listen to me. I listen to him, but he won't listen to me, so I'll say that. But he is. He's kind of a geek. God blessed him. He's in front of a hot rod church. I mean, it's like Hollywood people. They have huge production and he's the Bible teacher and God is using him and all kinds of things. And he's up there teaching the Bible. And he goes home and he says, wow, look what God did today. Look what God did today. His sovereign plan. I never dreamed he would bring me here. The fifth thing that we see in God's plan and that we see in the as an insight about God's work in us, number five is that the plan of God for my life might include extended periods of separation from loved ones. The plan of God for my life might include extended separation from loved ones. Oh, here we go negative again. This is why I don't like God's will. He's always doing things that you don't like. You can't explain and you have to wait on him. One of the great regrets of my life is that in all of my adult life, I never went deer hunting with my father. I should have, and I probably could have a couple of times, 
But I was in ministry in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and my father was in ministry in Michigan, and it never worked out on opening day of Michigan to be there for buck season on November 15th. I always had ministries. And so for all of my adult life, while Dad was still in ministry, we never got together. We would talk on the phone about, let's, get to, let's hunt, let's do this. We should go out to Uncle Bud's in Montana. I hardly ever got home once a week in the summer because mom and dad were in Michigan and what a great job my mom and dad did modeling, releasing their children. Are you willing to release your children to the will of God? Some of you know what it's like to go down to the airport and put your children on an airplane for parts unknown because it is God's will for them to do that. That's not an easy thing. I wonder how many of us are holding back what God is trying to do in our lives because of our agenda and our plan and the cozy, fuzzy little plan that we want to see worked out. I don't know how God wants to use you or your family. I was talking to Matt White. He's a young man in our church, married with three kids who went off to Bible college, and now he's at the Master's Seminary in California. And the other afternoon when I was talking to him, he was in seven lanes of one-way traffic gridlocked. And it was about 85 degrees. And he was just laughing, and he said, I don't know how I ever got here. (laughs) He's a long ways from his mom and dad. Do you know that? And grandpa and grandma are a long ways away from those little babies. But he says, I know I'm right where God wants me. Is that one of the greatest feelings in the world? To know that you're right where God wants you. Joseph, for many, many years, was separated. Listen, there's an attitude of discipleship. If you want to turn there quickly, this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus in Luke chapter 14. Let's just remind ourselves of this level of discipleship that Jesus called for and the cost that is involved in allowing him to be the king and us to be the servant slave. It's Luke chapter 14 and look at verse 25. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple disciple. Now, in Joseph's example, back to Genesis, we did not have a young man who willingly chose to leave his father and mother for the cost of the gospel. We have a young man who, in the circumstances of his life, ended up being divided and separated for over two decades from his beloved father, from his familiar home turf. But he refused to be embittered, didn't he? He refused to allow the circumstances of his life to spoil the reality of what God was doing in his life. One of the things you'll find as you mature in your Christian walk is that you will get to a place in your life where God will begin to ask you to do hard things. And one of them sometimes can be to move away from loved ones, 
family. Number six, the plan of God for my life might take years or even decades to make sense to me. Now, this is an interesting one, I think. I see this so real in Joseph's life, don't you? All of his meditations in prison, all of his meditations throughout his adult life, from 17 to 39, trying to put together what all God had been doing in his life, and a couple decades later, it is now crystal clear to him, this is what God was doing. Our problem is that we sometimes bail on God in our impatience. And we're not willing to wait on God. Psalm 37 tells us to wait on God. We hate to wait, don't we? We want to do everything right now. We want to see why. We want the what for right now. And I'm telling you that sometimes when, when the will of God and the plan of God for your life is a fog, you need to just keep walking in obedience until God reveals himself. And he will. But sometimes it takes a long time for us to get to a place in our life where we will turn around and look back and say, now, now I get it. Now I know what God was doing. Now I know. Now I know. And that's when, like, number one might come in. And after all that time, you'll say, and God was doing something in me that really wasn't about me. It was about this. It was about somebody else. You might have to wait till your kids grow up to see why God had you where he had you, to see what God planned to do through them, even a grandchild. The seventh thing is this. It is just a general reminder after these thoughts and insights on the plan of God for my life from Joseph, and it is that the plan of God for my life is not something of which to be afraid. Now, would Joseph choose to script out his life the way he did. Do you think that Joseph would say, this is what I want to do. I want my brothers to beat me up, throw me in a hole in the ground, sell me to Ishmaelite slave traders, end up in prison. No. And even if you said, you can even be second in command in, in all of Egypt, he would say, no, it's not worth it. But listen, when you hold loosely to the will of God for your life, you do not have to be afraid of the will of God for your life. God is not out to hurt you. You say, well, it kind of sounds like it. No, reality is, is that God uses the circumstances of the sin-cursed environment in which we live. And God uses even the rain that falls on every life to mold us and to shape us and to make us into his people. To use us. And you don't have to be afraid of that. And I want to talk particularly to the younger people now in the audience. Because I think that a lot of young people think that living for God is okay. But you're not sure that you can trust the love of a Heavenly Father enough to risk your life with Him because you certainly don't want to have to go through all these hard lessons and all the things that God is doing. And so you are determined to maintain the decision-making controls of your life, and I'm telling you that is the worst decision that any young person can ever make. To decide, especially volitionally, not just by default. Some of our young people decide it by default. You're only 11, 12, 13 years old. You don't like to go to Sunday school because that's really boring. 
And you like to do your video games, and I don't want to read my Bible. And I, everything about Jesus is boring. Everything about everything else around me is fun. Bible or basketball, which one are you going to choose? That's the wrong attitude. And the idea then, you come to this place in your life as a younger person and you just say, you know, I don't care what they say. I'm going to do it my way. I don't care what my mom and dad say. I don't care what my pastor says. I'm going to do it my way. I want to tell you that to say I'll do it my way is the most dangerous statement a Christian can ever make. That's the way of those who don't trust in a heavenly father who has sovereign oversight of their life, who don't believe that that you have a good shepherd who will lead you and guide you, provide for you and meet your needs. You don't believe that you have a manual with promises that are true and upon which you can build your life. And instead, you'd rather go down to the sand and build your house rather than build it on the rock. And can I tell you this morning that there is no pain equal to the pain of knowing that the pain of my life is a self-inflicted pain. Can I say that again? There is no pain that is equal to the pain of knowing that the pain in my life is a self-inflicted pain. That means that if God is bringing pain into my life, you can deal with it. But if you're in a phase in your life that because of disobedience and because of hard-headedness and because of self-willed sin, your life is full of pain, there is no pain equal to that. Because you have said, I'm going to do it my way, and God says, go ahead. And there you are. And so I want to end this morning with a little bit more practical instruction. And I've listed these for the screen as well. And I continually uh, want to keep in mind the younger people in this audience... And I want to take Joseph's name, and this is kind of my little memorial to Sam Erickson this morning as well, and I want to use uh, Joseph's name and, and bring it to the New Testament church, all right? And how can you as a younger person, and older people too, but how can you as a young person be like Joseph? How can you be like Joseph in your life so that you can say, I'm going to trust the plan of God to unfold in my life and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on God for Him to bless me and use me however He sees fit. I've called this simply just living out God's plan for my life. Living out God's plan for my life. And the J stands for Jesus is my Savior. And to simplify turning in our Bibles, let's conclude today in the epistle of 1 John And let's just take in a few more minutes of some, I hope, will be practical and yet spiritually challenging instruction to you. And way back in your New Testament, the the way, almost the second or third last book of the Bible, about the fourth to the last book of the Bible, in 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, we're going to use some verses here to reinforce these remarks. But listen closely, will you, for just a minute? If you've been listening and you say, all right, I really want to have a trust in God's sovereign oversight of my life, the first thing I need to say is that you need to know Jesus as your Savior. This doesn't work for people who are not God's people, all right? This is for people who are the children of God. God is not a loving Heavenly Father to all people everywhere. 
We sing songs and we talk about all God's people and all over the world are God's people. Well, yes, in maybe a general sense, God, these are all people on earth are are owned by God or, or, or God is over them. But all people on earth cannot say that I have a loving heavenly father that I trust and with whom I have a right relationship. And so I want you to know that the first thing you have to do is you have to come to a place where you reconcile with a holy God and where you realize that you are a sinner and that God's hand of blessing is not upon your life because of that sin that separates you and that until you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we call that having Jesus as your Savior or being born again or being saved, becoming a Christian, then you are not in right relationship with God and you cannot expect the blessing of God on your life. Let's see what John said in 1 John chapter 5, 11 and 12. Notice what he says. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. And I want to tell you that eternal life starts the day of your salvation, of walking with God in Christ. We all have eternal life in one of two places. The Bible clearly teaches a literal hell and separation from God and a horrible judgment for sin and sinners who have not acknowledged that a holy God cannot be approached in their own humanity and that you need a liaison. You need a substitute. You need a savior. You need someone to come and rescue you from your sin. And in short, that's what God did. In case case you haven't got this, that's what God did when he sent Jesus to come dwell on earth, to grow up, to go to the cross, to take the sins of the world upon himself, that whosoever could come to him from then on and acknowledge the fact that he alone carried their sin at the cross and that his righteousness alone is the righteousness that appeases the wrath of a holy God so that we can have a right relationship with him and we can have this life in Christ. And so the first thing you have to think about is, okay, am I saved? Do I know Jesus as my savior? Do I admit that I'm a sinner? And have I repented of that sin? Have I acknowledged it before a holy God and admitted my sinfulness? Before him, And do I believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross and then he was buried and then he rose again the third day? That's the gospel. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And that's what I'm holding on to for my salvation. And it's an act of faith. It's like putting yourself right there. That's what's holding me up. This is the only thing I'm standing on is the reality that Jesus died for my sin and my trust and faith is in that. And I have acknowledged this before a holy God. The Bible says that you become a child of God and you are then in the light. This is the testimony. He's given you that eternal life. The second thing you need to do to be a Joseph in the church today is not only know Jesus as your savior, but number two part is you need to live out in obedience to the revealed will of God. This is this. Listen, everybody always wants to know God's will. Everybody wants to know, how do I know God's will for my life? If you have not taken the written word of God where the revealed will of God unfolds for us and paid attention to it, forget about where you're going to work, who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to school, what kind of truck you're going to drive. This is where it starts. 
The plan of God for my life starts on the pages of Scripture. Do you understand that? And that's why little verses that we teach in Sunday school, like, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So don't go seeking God's will for where you're going to college if you're 15, 16, 17 years old and you're in a bitter, hateful fight with your parents. God is not at work in your life. That's not being Joseph. And so you have to receive what God has told us. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Do not let your body be used in sinful debauchery and sexuality like the lost of the world. So like if you're a Christian young person and you're involved in sexual immorality, forget asking God where you're going with the rest of your life. You're, you're disregarding the revealed will of God. It's right here. Your focus has to be the revealed will of God, walking in obedience to Scripture. And if you don't care about that, then I'm telling you, shut this message off and just forget caring about everything else and go back to the other point of getting ready for the pain that is like no other pain than the pain of knowing that you're in self-induced pain. Because that's where you're going. Okay? You want to be Joseph and you want the blessing of God, you've got to be God's child. Somehow Joseph had an overriding reality of his place in the Abrahamic covenant and who God was. And then obedience to the revealed will of God that I'm going to be faithful. The S stands for surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, I forgot to show you my first John verses on obedience. Let's look at that real quick. We still have four minutes. First John chapter two, take a look at that. And that's, that's when it's supposed to end. First John two, three through six, look what it says. First John two, three through six. We know, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. You see, it's, John even says that obedience to the revealed will of God is one of the identifying marks of a true Christian. Because, see, anybody can say anything. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, that's some seeker-friendly information, isn't it? But if anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Pretty high assignment there. Make it your lifelong quest to just live out obedience to the revealed will of God. S, surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, look at these verses. Chapter 3, 4 through 10. Dear children... I'll back up. Everyone who sins breaks the law. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him, that would be Jesus, is no sin. Well, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Okay? You don't keep on sinning if you're in Jesus. In other words, you come to a place in your life where Jesus is Lord of your life and you surrender your will to his and you walk in obedience. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The NIV gets a bad rap lots of times on its translation work and it has some flaws in its dynamic equivalence compared to like the King James. But he gets it right right here. The idea is, it's not that you don't sin. 1 John 1, eight says that if I say I never sin, then I lie and the truth isn't in me. But if I do sin and I confess my sin, I have a heavenly Father who's faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers. 
But in the Greek verb tense here, it's got, they got it right in the NIV. It is the continual carrying on movement of ongoing sin in my life, and I still say I'm a Christian. And John says, be quiet. Stop talking. If you continue to just live in sin the way you always live in sin, stop saying you're a Christian because Christians who are in Christ come to a place where it says in verse 6 that no one who lives in him will keep on sinning. Why? Because of the relationship. And I won't do that anymore. And I come to a place where Jesus is Lord of my life and I don't want to displease him. It doesn't mean Christians can't sin after salvation. And it does not mean that Christians lose their salvation. It means that you don't talk about being a Christian if you're going to continue in sin because there's no evidence in your life. You're deceiving yourself. The third thing is an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Even the youngest children here can begin to understand this. We're not living just for this world. We're living for eternity future. Look what he says in 2.28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him does what purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. I live with a perspective that this life is getting me ready for the next life and that Jesus is coming at any time and I want to be caught by surprise and have no guilty conscience of what he catches me doing. I purify myself. And so I have an eternal perspective. The last two, prayer. You need to be praying for God to work and unfold his will in your life. If you're not praying, then you're living in self-reliance. And the final thing is hard work. Hard work. Did Joseph work hard? Did Joseph have a work ethic that was just phenomenal? Everywhere Joseph went, what happened? He went to the top. He surfaced as God's man who had God's hand upon him. And he worked hard and he let God's will unfold in his life. He didn't fight God. It is, as we've been saying, he just let God be God in his life. It's easy to talk about and it's hard to do, isn't it? What a remarkable thing when Joseph looked at those brothers of his and said, guys, don't give it another thought. This has all been the unfolding plan of God in my life. You want God's plan to unfold in your life? Then accept Jesus as your Savior. Commit to obedience to the revealed will of God. Surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Live with an eternal perspective. Pray hard and work hard. And watch what God does in your life. Doesn't mean there might not be very difficult days. But it means that you can have a confidence and a peace and a joy in knowing that your faithful Heavenly Father is unfolding His plan in your life.
Let's bow in prayer. Before I pray, just with our heads bowed for a minute, I'm wondering if there's some people here that need to be saved today. You need to admit your sinfulness. You need to get right with God today because your sin has blocked the path. And you need to look to the cross where Jesus died for your sin and tell God right now in the privacy of your own mind and heart, especially those who might feel that convicting power. You have a really funny feeling inside right now. And you know that you're not fit to stand before God. That's your sin. The blood of Jesus was shed to wash away that sin. He really was God in the flesh and he came to pay the penalty and then give you his righteousness. And by faith right now, you admit your sinfulness. You tell God that you believe this is true for you. And you reject your sinfulness. You say, I don't want that anymore. I want God's will to unfold in my life. You'll be saved. Others of you, especially Christian young people here today, need to maybe get a grip on the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Maybe you're just posturing at youth group and church. we were to follow you around, there might not be enough evidence to convict you even of being a Christian. You need to come to a place in your life today, young and old, where you're not afraid of the plan of God to unfold in your life. Let come what may. I'm telling you, that brings a great peace and surrender when you yield your will to the will of the Heavenly Father. Some of us need to do that today. Father, you know our hearts and our minds and our inmost thoughts. You know some of the struggles that people have had and some of the hurts and the disappointments. And Lord, there's people that have lost spouses and they're alone. They never thought they'd be alone. There's people who've lost jobs. They never saw it coming. Lord, there's health problems. There's just all kinds of things that we could just rebel against. But instead, Lord, will we just, will you just work in us so that we can yield these things over to you and may they actually bring glory to you and praise to Jesus Christ as your will unfolds in our lives in ways that perhaps we won't see today. We might have to wait a while to see. So do your work in us, Lord. Help us to just surrender to you, to trust you, and to obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.